Litcast Slovakia, the podcast about Slovak literature in English. Welcome to Litcast Slovakia number nine. I'm your host, Julia Sherwood, and today I'll be talking to Natasha Djurovicova. Natasha Djurovicova studied at the University of Lund, University of California at Santa Barbara, and at University of California, Los Angeles. She is now based at the University of Iowa, where she teaches its International Translation Workshop, part of the university's renowned International Writing Program, and teaches courses on translation and globalization, and translation and media. She divides her time between editing, teaching, scholarly working and sometimes also translating. Ahoj Natasha, welcome to Litka Slovakia. Thank, here, thank you. Uh, here in London, we're in the middle of a heat wave. Uh, how are things in Iowa? I hear you've had some freak weather the other day. <laughs> it's not. The heat wave was there until yesterday and that was concluded by a enormous storm which pulled down electricity, power, internet and unfortunately hundreds of old trees. It's There's a reason for why this place is called a prairie, you know, as in meadow. Uh, the wind really takes things out terribly. So, yeah. So, sad, very sad, but 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 fine. Well, I'm glad to hear you're safe and I really appreciate that you managed to make it to our recording uh, rendezvous in these circumstances. So now, uh, let me go back in time uh, to the experience of exile that the two of us have in common. We were both born in Czechoslovakia, but while I was forced into exile in my 20s, you ended up in exile when you were quite young. You grew up in Sweden and now live in the US, but in spite of that, you have kept up your Slovak. I guess that has something to do with your family background. As the daughter of uh, Professor Lubomir Djurovic, a doyen of Slavonic studies in Czechoslovakia, and a journalist mother. So I wonder how this experience, how the experience of exile shaped you and your family. Well, the experience of exile is one that um you know, changes everything and it's completely fundamental. Uh, uh, I don't think that anything that happens once you have that point of no return as your baseline, anything's ever the same. And so it, you know, there is that, it, that to answer that properly would be a novel or a psychiatrist session. Uh, in okay, short, no, however, totally, yeah. In other, in short, totally, yes. It changed everything. But you know, Sweden has been an incredibly generous and welcoming country, and I, for the rest of my life, will owe a debt of gratitude to Sweden um, as a country and as a society for having um, let us in, taken us in as well as they did, and has been as as generous and as as welcoming as they have been. So that's one way of putting it. <laughs> Yeah. And the rest of your family? Well, you my father eventually became a professor of Slavic languages and had a very successful career, was very happy and very productive. Uh, my mother, Lyudmila Jurovicova, whose name I feel like I want to say, uh, is um, was the one who bore the brunt of the decision. The decision was made gen- jointly by all of us, but um, as it so often is the case, it was the journalist and the writer who lost the opportunities and uh, ended up 
really working extremely hard and uh, with a great deal of uh, personal sacrifice to endure the exile. The family configuration was, you could say, one very, very successful and one very uh, reasonably accommodated, but very uh, sad woman, you know. And then, of course, 89 happened and then they could return. And But, you know, you lose 20 years of your life. And it's it's difficult and we all know how that goes. And uh, it's something yeah. that really divides us from people who've never left. Yeah, and uh, uh, losing your language if you're a writer really is the worst thing that can happen. But uh, you didn't lose a language, you've gained several, and you've been involved in so many things. Uh, too much to cover, really, in this brief conversation. And I hope we'll get around to that some other time. But uh, now let's focus on literature, starting with the Walt Whitman project. Can you say a few words about that? The international writing program, of which we're uh, Walt Whitman, the, the Whitman Web, as we call it, is just one of the many dozens of digital projects, um, is a program that is now five decades old and was built around um, a kind of a combination of writers who come to Iowa, sponsored by the U.S. Department of State, previously by some other U.S. Um, information agency, etc., and many private arts grantees. So the group of about 30 people that come every year um, is in Iowa physically, but as the internet has gotten more and more important, uh, it was clear to everybody that we will would be needing to think about how to make the IWP act also online and in the in in the digital space and Whitman web is one of the many projects that um, were the result of that kind of thinking in particular Whitman web is was originally funded by the US Department of State as an effort to make to to create a rapprochement to of all places Iran so this is during the Obama years when Iran was uh, uh, off limits but needed to be somehow contacted and so somebody came up with the idea that uh, Walt Whitman's great, the great American text of American modern literary modernism and the American, if you will, democracy or sort of ideal of democracy, that has not been translated into Persian. So we commissioned the translation into Persian and then uh, came up with this uh, design where we would release a stanza. The song of myself has 52 stanzas, so we would decide that we would release a stanza of the American, of the original version, and of the Persian version each week. So we would have a year-long project, and each stanza was prefaced by a commentary by a scholar, um, Ed Folsom, who is a terrific Whitman scholar based here at the University of Iowa, and it would be commented on by a poet, Chris Merrill, who runs this program. Mm -hmm. And the same, those commentaries would be also translated to Persian. So it was a kind of a creation of a digital object, if you will. And we started with English and Persian and then found and started looking around and soliciting uh, uh, either open source or spe specifically commissioned translations from other languages. And so we now have Song of Myself, um, which we then added to the website. And we now have uh, translation 13 languages total, including Malay, Polish, two Arabic translations done by two different people very, very differently, two different Russian versions, one of Tchaikovsky's and one of a very young woman translator, etc., uh, etc. Et it's it's just been really exciting uh, to think about it as a way of doing translation in kind of a comparative spirit, which is what the internet is the best, 
you know, it's the, it's an ideal medium for that. So, uh, and we're just waiting for a Turkish translation to be delivered. And if there's somebody out there who has a Slavic translation or is interested in 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 creating one, I would love to hear from you. Wonderful, wonderful. So uh, here's a little challenge there, and. Uh... Can you just say a few more words about the International Writing Programme uh, for those listeners who are not so familiar with it? Uh, how does it work and what are its main goals? So, uh, Iowa has this prehistory of creative writing, which is quite distinct and definitely uh, it's what is Iowa known for in the United States? It's known for two things. It's corn and pork as it's raised with the corn and for creative writing. Right. So these two things, <laughs> these two things, things, expert articles are are what, what makes Iowa visible to people. And among, among academics, I guess, writing more than the corn. Um, it's um, uh, so the, the writer's workshop started here, the teaching of creative writing, uh, a topic to which we might return a little later in this interview. Uh, teaching of creative writing started here, was started here and sort of picked up with a particular vigor by a man whose name is a poet, whose name is Paul Engel uh, after World War II. He was a local guy, but very cosmopolitan. Uh, uh, built up the translation, the uh, writers' workshop, which is for American writers, um, in the late 40s and early 50s, is very, very successful. And as he traveled uh, the world, and at the same time as he was um, in his own sort of cosmos efforts to render this provincial part of the United States relatively invisible again, a more cosmopolitan and more international. He was very interested in the idea of bringing international writers to the Writers Workshop. He then got funding from the Rockefeller Foundation who said, how do you want to do this? And so uh, at some point, the Writers Workshop uh, started having a substantive number of writers from other countries who either wrote in English or wrote in another language and translated to and from English. So this international writing program has a kind of a seedbed inside of the writer's workshop, but they are not interchangeable. The writer's workshop continues today. It's probably it's a very, very prestigious organization for granting a master's in creative fine arts and creative writing for people, uh, for writers from all over the world. But the international writing program then uh, became autonomous, sort of set itself free from the writer's workshop. It's not an academic program. We don't grant a degree, but we're simply an international residency where writers from all over the world come uh, now for about three months, originally for almost a year, uh, to simply coexist and to write. And uh, so we will be celebrating our 55th anniversary in the year 2022. And uh, uh, we've had, you know, over 1600 writers who've come here. And, um, uh, you know, it's a, the program really is a kind of a distinct kind of a flagship, one of the flagship programs of University of Iowa and something that we are really um, you know, we have we we have people we have people everywhere, as it were. It's a very uh, the network is enormous, um, and um, and we are trying to figure out how to do this in the era of COVID. So this the first this fall is actually the first fall ever that we have not had uh, three dozen or so of writers come to Iowa City, but we hope to resume again in spring and keep your fingers crossed for us. I certainly will. And so we, uh, you have now explained the difference between the Writers Workshop and the International Writing Programme. And then there is the 
translation workshop. <laughs> so how do these uh, uh, all, all these workshops uh, link to one another and who attends the translation workshop? Is it uh, students at Iowa University or have I got that completely wrong? No, no, no. You, 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 you parse the acronyms right. And this is the, the great plague of the American academic life or life in general acronyms. So um, the Writers Workshop uh, gave birth, as it were, the international writing program became autonomous or sort of uh, 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 exited itself as an autonomous organization. Uh, similarly, the Writers Workshop uh, started very early on uh, they've always had a workshop, which is a kind of a same language workshop, and this is a kind of a unique Iowa model in and of itself. Uh, the idea that it's not a master teacher who who critiques, who comments on your writing, uh, but rather the group of your readers work together. It's a very collectively organized uh, kind of enterprise. And there, there was inside mm -hmm. of the, the Writers' Workshop, some er, in the early 60s, um, a poet was invited from Princeton who was bilingual English and Greek and Paul Engel said why don't you teach a writer's workshop a translation workshop since we have so many uh, international participants and uh, Mike Keeley that was his name said what's that and Paul said I have no idea just make it up and so the translation workshop was born <laughs> and originally it served simply as a way in which the international participants could work on drafts together with the American colleagues and produce new work in English. In other words, there it was geared towards really creative writing in English. And Keeley has been very explicit about saying that his goal has been was entirely to produce, to focus on the uh, target language, which in this case was completely English. That was the only criterion. Now, but from that mix, from that kind of working group mix, eventually uh, there came an impulse to start an actual academic program in literary translation. And that happened in 1971 or two, uh, when an MFA in literary translation was opened inside, alongside was program in comparative literature. So Writers Workshop is an academic program that grants a degree, the translate, MFA in Literary Translation is also an academic program that grants a degree, and then International Writing Program is simply a residency. So that's an administrative way of explaining the various, the, 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 the varieties. Right. But it's a great symbiosis because we get students from the Writers' Workshop who come over to the IWP to work with writers. Uh, most of the participants in the International Translation Workshop, which I teach, are students who come over from the academic side, from the comparative literature, uh, department to work with the visiting writers and sometimes we just get people who come from the community it's completely open so that I think that's the floor plan that's the map mm -hmm. but I don't know if you want to ask any more questions about it it may be just how long you've actually been involved with this program I was hired uh, the, a week before 9-11 so <laughs> do the math <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave our uh, Listeners to do the math. Right. I'm really no good at it. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. Yes. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. Uh, so back to the IWP. Over the years, you mentioned hundreds of writers from 150 countries uh -huh. have taken part in the program, including several from uh, uh, several Czech and Slovak writers. Mm -hmm. So can you mention some of them that stayed in your memory and uh, 
how and what kind of mark they made? Uh, so in during the years of Cold War, uh, uh, let's say pre-89, uh, Paul Engel, who, parenthesis here, in uh, as he was starting out the program, married a Taiwanese novelist, Chinese Taiwanese novelist, Nye Hualing Engel. So the two of them together started, they are really the two co-founders of the program, and Hualing's name must be mentioned again uh, and not forgotten in this context. Uh, the two of them started the program with the ambition to so often they would refer to the IWP as the United Nations of Writers. And they were very interested in bringing writers from, you know, as it were, uh, polarized and divided parts of the world. So their interest in Eastern East Europe was um, obviously in the Cold War context that there was no way of escaping the flavor of politics. But on the other hand, uh, it was also Nye Hualing's experience as a refugee from uh, from the People's Republic of China to Taiwan that colored her experiences and her very um, actively dissenting stance against the Chiang Kai-shek regime in Taiwan, etc. As well, that the, that I think uh, gave them a special focus and special interest in bringing writers who themselves might be in trouble to some extent, and so clearly people who uh, were you know, we're coming from Czechoslovakia after 1968 would have been prime candidates. Um, but then the goal was not simply to, as it were, operate in the Cold War paradigm, but rather to bring people from a variety of different backgrounds. So um, among the first person who was brought in from Czechoslovakia, who wasn't actually brought in from Czechoslovakia because by then he'd been in exile in Israel and was badly needing a place to come and 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 write and simply survive was Arnos Lustig, whom Paul mm -hmm. Engel, uh, I've looked at the correspondence, and it's kind of remarkable how much work, how much trouble Engel went into to fund first, find funding for him to uh, perhaps not come into the United States, but certainly to come from New York with his family, two kids and a wife to Iowa, uh, find work for him, find assignments for him, find writing commissions for him. I mean, it's an incredibly uh, warm relationship. And Lustig wrote some rather wonderful poems about Iowa to Engel personally in Czech, which yeah, really? I have yet to, and one day I will get around to translating. They're really quite charming. And uh, that was clearly a very, very intimate relationship. And I think they stayed in contact um, uh, by correspondence even after um, Lustig uh, returned to Prague. So um, at least for with Walling, Paul was died soon soon after 89 but uh and then in 1968 the first person they invited was Václav Havel uh and Havel accepted and we have the letter of documentation for that and then the 21st of August happened so Havel didn't but uh Havel's uh, uh intent to come uh, was here and in fact we reissued a an invitation and again we got a very affirmative answer but by then his cancer was so far along that he no longer was able to come but we would have really loved to have have brought him back among the slog writers oh. we have Mila Haugova uh, Michal Horecki most recently Robert Galf uh, originally from Bratislava but now a now coming to us from through Prague um, and among the Slovaks we have uh, we have uh, uh, Peter Machowski, Gustav Murin was the first after 95, Peter Machowski, then Michal Horecki, uh, uh, Jana ben and Jana Benjova. So we do, we do our best and we do love to have them 
try and uh, we are always you know we are always encouraging the embassies and the cultural attaches to keep an eye on and recruit people so maybe that's a segue to your one of your other questions down the line about how one applies and how one enters the program okay thank you uh, so maybe we can actually skip that question since you've answered it uh, but uh, just go back to the international writing program which fits into a long tradition of creative writing courses in the US where they are very popular uh, although in fact recently there's been some backlash against it and they're now slowly getting established in Slovakia as well uh, for example one of them by your former alumnus uh, Michal Moretsky so can you say what you see as the main benefits of such courses for an aspiring writer and also are there any possible drawbacks Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I have been kind of keeping an eye on that and thinking about it for a long time, because I think the answer there lies in some profound cultural cleft. Even on the surface, it looks like it's the it's the same project that proliferates. But I think the cleft comes from the fact that you could say that in Europe, and I'm going to generalize grossly, but let's say outside of the United States, that and I think that goes for Latin America as well as for Asia, uh, a writer is somebody who in the kind of a romantic, now I don't mean romantic as in emotionally romantic, but I mean in the historical, literary, yes. critical, romantic sense, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, writes from an inner need and his success or his relevance is deemed uh, based on the degree to which she or he speaks to a current situation or a current need, whether it's a readerly need or a political need or a social need. In other words, the notion of the writer as an organic intellectual is something that we all have. You're outside of the United States, this is taken extremely seriously. That's the reason why the ethical dimension of writing and the, the sense of the heroic writer who writes towards truth with Jan Hus, right, uh, uh, is such a foundational concept. Uh, in the United States, the United States has a completely different intellectual tradition. And there, I would say that the foundation for uh, what today manifests itself as these creative writing courses really comes from a much more pedagogically oriented and, uh, let's say, uh, educational uh, point of departure. I think it comes from the the American sort of innovation or innovative philosophical stance of pragmatism and that where the the chief rule is learn by doing not learn by absorbing by reading by in some ways complying with the educational or with the cultural paradigm but rather by breaking out autonomy and independence uh, so when cre- and and in fact when you historically creative writing st- in in this country started being taught at universities as a class in 1920s already when you started having the first courses in 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 screenwriting in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California so from the beginning the writer becomes a much more utilitarian practical and you might say um, professional label rather than the voice of nation or an expression of a of a you know inner need or something like that these are two completely different notions of what a writer should be doing and of course and so in the united states and if if we take iowa that was exactly the paul engels perspective which is you take talented people people who think that they have talent and you submit them to a series of in a sense public pressures pressure groups where they in 
vigorous debate with their colleagues, with their classmates in the workshop format, uh, test their capacity to produce something that others find acceptable. So there, the norm is really gauged by people who are your immediate readers and who give you feedback on the spot. That's very, very different from the way in which I think writing historically, at least, was, um, you know, came to surface or how literature, the birth of literary texts was organized in other parts of the world. And today, you know, it's in part, I think, the Internet. But I kind of wonder whether the uh, uh, certainly in Czech slash O slash Slovakia, uh, the the introduction of this new form of creative writing isn't to some extent a re-import of this American pragmatic tradition with the people who were returning after 1989. You know, so I think that in some ways the, the this um, uh, this uh, new mode of teaching creative writing as a pedagogic and perhaps as a kind of professional oriented inclination is something that may be part of that feedback loop of exile and return. Uh, that's I have no evidence for this. This is a pure speculation. But I certainly know that the notion of creative writing as a kind of a profession as it's as it's cultivated here is stands, I think, in sharp contrast to um, the, these other intellectual traditions. And yet, at the same time, it's been extremely popular because I think that we now have the situation where we have, you know, so many of so many young people are what you would say, what you would call prosumers, people who are both producers and consumers at the same time. So this whole, you know, torrent of fan literature or people who calc their writing on popular genres and publish it online are extremely successful. To some extent, it's, you know, it's like folk music or it's like folk writing, you could almost say, you know. Yes. In other words, mm -hmm. it's it's really, um, it fulfills different social needs. I did want to add this last thing, which is that, you know, we are actually not the oldest creative writing program in the world. The Gorky Institute in Moscow is, which started teaching proletarian, you know, candidates and turning them into proletarian writers in the late 1920s. And that too is a kind of a version of this professionalization of writing that is not in the spirit of uh, resistance or individual voice or certainly not, no, not the ethical drive, but yes. it, it fulfills other needs. Okay. Right, thank you. Now, your students at the translation workshop edit a journal called Exchanges, uh, and then you also edit a journal called 95th Meridian. Could you say a little bit about these two journals and also about your journal's most recent pandemic uh, issues? <laughs> so, um, even from the early 70s on, when Paul and Nye Hualing Engel started boosting the program and trying to make it be, uh, get it to survive and thrive, they understood that publishing translation was an absolutely essential part of what the the purpose of the program. Um, and they were very, very diligent in uh, commissioning, finding, and uh, and publishing monographs uh, of translations of material that nobody was paying attention to at all. So, you know, you have a collection of Bulgarian poetry published in early 1970s or Korean poetry at a point where nobody was doing that sort of a thing. So there's a long tradition of that. But of course, um, and then 
out of that, uh, out of the MFA in literary translation, the journal Exchanges was born in part because one of its uh, one of its directors for a little while was Danny Weisbord, mm -hmm. and so he had it kind of in his DNA that you know if you have translation, you must have publication to go with it. So Exchanges comes from uh, uh, dates back to the early early or mid 70s or so, and then eventually it kind of died on the vine, and then it was resuscitated once internet made that possible. Mm -hmm. uh, 91st, not 95th Meridian, which is the Meridian that runs through Iowa City, just to place us on the global map, um, is a journal that I, I, it was part of my brief when I first was hired to start an electronic journal. So 91st Meridian has been coming out for nearly 20 years, uh, was a little bit more dormant during a certain period. But essentially, uh, my feeling is I tried to combine in that journal uh, contributions from our alumni or writers who've been here. In other words, work that I know uh, through the IWP grid, but also open submissions from other writers, from writers for wherever. And essentially, the only requirement is that we don't we publish, as the mission statement says, work that somehow is beyond the national. Um, and the COVID issues were simply, I just, we had two issues where we wrote to our alumni, of which we have many, and asked in the first issue, you know, how has um, COVID, how has the, the, really the quarantine changed the situation around you? And the second one is, what do you think is going to be left after the quarantine is over and what social changes will follow from that? And some answers were predictably boring and some answers were incredibly interesting. So I recommend everyone to go visit the IWP website, find the issues of 91st Meridian and read for themselves. Okay, so they're all online. Wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, I think we're coming to an end. I just wanted to ask very briefly, because I know that your range of interests is so broad that you probably don't have much time or capacity to follow Slovak literature, but to the extent that you have been able to follow it, uh, which writers in Slovakia, past or present, do you find most interesting? And is there someone who you believe should be introduced to Anglophone readers? <laughs> I, yeah, I... I, I... I am so ashamed and I so do not want to answer this question because I really, that would only be make any sense if I really had some ongoing and active, uh, you know, engagement with Slovak literature. I, whenever I go to Bratislava, I go to the bookstores at Forum and, uh, and Martinus and uh, whatever I can. And I pick up as many books as will fit into the suitcase and I read but then uh, when I go back to Sweden, to my parents' house, where their exile literature and their, their, the, the few books that they've managed to, to, to bring over and the, few, the many books that they eventually that people sent them, uh, I, I read differently. And in both cases, I read less for individual authors and for visions. I read more for this, to gain or to, to keep track a little bit of the changes that Slovenčina, that Slovak language under has undergone in the last, you know, in the, these many shifts. And so for in the contempt, I, I read for the new words and the inflection of perhaps English, the loss of Czechisms or the gains of Czechisms in mm -hmm. the contemporary Slovak writers. And, uh, and then I go back and read the writers who have not had any contact with outside world, at least linguistically, because I've been re lately been immersed in Kukuchin at nights whenever I go to my dad's house in Lund and, uh, and, and Zguriška, precisely for that, for a Slovak that's completely, you know, uh, I don't want to say pure, pur 
purismus. I don't want to say uncontaminated. I just mean to say a Slovak as it was before media took it on. And then the same, at the same time, I'm extremely interested in the way in which, you know, a Hvoretsky, let's say, or a Benjova uh, capture the Slovak as it's translate as it's changing, you know, month by or year by year in the contemporary world. So that's my, that's my, it's somewhat cowardly, but actually, uh, truly honest answer. Well, this um, is and... an absolutely legitimate take. Uh, so <laughs> really, there's no need to apologize. And, uh, I'm really, really grateful to you for taking time to answer all these questions and, uh, you know, we're in August, which is the Women in Translation Month, so I'm really glad that we were able to mention some women writers and also to pay a tribute to your mother, Ludmila Durovicheva and Huelin Engler. So, thank you very much and uh, take care and, uh, yeah. Dovidenia. Dovidenia. Dovidenia do počutia. Ahoj. Ahoj.